Good morning, Sunrise. We're going to start out with the song this morning that's based on the Apostles' Creed. This, this appeared first in writing around A.D. 390, and the whole concept of it is to state what you believe. So as we sing this, we're going to do it a little differently, and I'll teach you as we go along. So if you would stand with us to be ready to sing and to, and to speak. I believe what I believe It's what makes me what I am I did not make it No, it is making me It is the very truth of God And not the invention of any man So what we're going to do is We're going to read the verses together, please So read with me I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Now wait, we're not reading. We need everybody reading. You ready? I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and dead and buried. I believe what I believe what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man second verse he descended into hell and on the third day rose again he ascended into heaven where he sits at God's mighty right hand I believe that he's returning to judge the quick and the dead of the sons of men. I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it, no, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in life that never ends. I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it, no, it is making me. I did not make it, no, it is making me. I said I 
seated. Good morning. Okay. I wasn't sure how loud that might be. It's still too loud, Curtis. <laughs> okay. Well, good morning, Sunrise. It's good to see you all out this morning. Um, beginning to feel like fall. I love the coolness in the, in the morning, and it's just kind of kind of an enjoyable time of year. And so we just want to make you aware of a few of the announcements that we have. It's kind of like it's men's week at Sunrise. We have a couple of events for the men. Uh, we don't always have those very often, and so we want to make sure you're aware of them. On Thursday night, we're having a pitchfork fondue. Uh, that'll be at 6 o'clock here at the, here at the fairgrounds. Um, we do need reservations for that because we're serving steak and baked potatoes. And so get your reservations in to Dewey or to Daryl or to myself, really any of the staff members. And uh, we're looking forward to, to, to that event. And then Saturday morning, the 10th, will be our um, monthly prayer breakfast or men's meeting at the Main Street building. And Daryl always takes good care of us with breakfast. And then um, I think Jared Rapp is going to share with us this weekend. And so we're looking forward to that. Other things to be kind of out ahead, uh, our next new to sunrise gathering after the morning service will be on the 18th. And so if you're new with us or if you'd like to know more about sunrise or uh, about our history or meet the staff and the leadership, uh, we'd invite you to come to that. And if you just let one of the staff or, or even any of the elders know that you'd like to come, then we can make arrangements to have, have adequate food there. And then also uh, Mary's Retreat coming up. Um, the good news is we had to change venues because we had more people coming than the venue would hold. So that's a, that's a good problem. And so we're grateful for that. We're going to be at YMCA of the Rockies. That'll be November 20th through the 22nd. Um, the retreat itself will be um, the night of the 21st and 22nd. And then we have an option that if you want to come a night early, just on your own. And there's lots of things to do there at YMCA of the Rockies, lots of activities, uh, the meals are all included for that extra night, and so you can register for that online. And we're looking forward to just the time we can get together and, and focus on our marriages and what, what God wants us to be. So we're excited as we get into fall. We don't know what normal is going to look like, but we're glad that we know the God that is in control of all the things that are going on. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get back into worship. Father, we thank you this morning for the joy and, and comfort that we feel in our relationship with you. We're thankful, Father, that uh, you've redeemed us, you've sent Jesus to die for us, that in the midst of the uncertainty of our lives, just the things going on in our personal lives and, the life, and even in the world around us, that uh, we can rejoice in the fact that you're in control. And uh, as long as we're hanging on to you, then you're the rock, you're the God that does not change. And we're grateful for that. We pray that you would just empower our worship this morning, pray that your Holy Spirit would be in our midst as, as we turn our attention to your word. And Father, we just want to go our way this morning know that we, knowing that we have heard from you and you've spoke to us in the, in the recesses and the, in the, within the needs of our heart. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dead of night and you tell 
saying about God being a good, good father? Do you really believe that? I'm, I'm not asking you to answer. I'm asking you to ask yourself, do you really believe that God is our good, good father? Because if you really believe that, your life will reflect that in the things that you do and the things that you follow. And so my challenge today, as we continue singing, what do you believe? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. Oh, 
Jesus, it always leads us to worship of God.
son is worthy. Father, he paid the price we could not pay. We just thank you and we worship you for that because you are the one who is worthy. Lord, I just pray now as your spirit fills our hearts, Lord, that it would open our minds as well to your words. That when we leave here today, we have seen you and we are changed people. It's in your name I pray. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our second message in the series in 2 Thessalonians. Um, This second time that Paul felt the need uh, to encourage and minister to to the church at Thessalonica. In, the, in chapter 1, what we looked at last week, um, it was encouragement for a persecuted church. They were in the midst of persecution and difficulties, and, and it was just hard for them, uh, especially since the persecution came from their own, from the Jewish community. And so they, they were discouraged, and Paul just wanted to encourage them in that. Uh, we saw the things that were seen, the persecution. We saw and had some, a glimpse into what was unseen, the fact that God takes note of those things, and in the end... Um, it's all going to be made right in his plan. As we get into chapter 2 today, um, we're going to get into the heart of God's plan for the ages. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of a lesson in Bible survey this morning, and so I, I want to keep this as simple and concise as I can, but we can't cover chapter 2 without looking at God's plan for the ages, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that. And then chapter 3, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at uh, Paul's just exhortation about what it means to walk as integrity, in integrity as a child of God. And so that was uh, basically the, the summation of Paul's, uh, Paul's second letter. This morning, we're going to talk about prophecy. Prophecy is a theme that runs throughout the Old and the New Testament. Um, when we think of prophecy, many times we think of telling the future, but really in reality, prophecy is more than that. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, both the major and the minor prophets, you'll see that that their message was a combination of two things. One was certainly telling about what God was going to do in the future, but the second thing was warning people of what was going to happen if they didn't return to God, or telling them about God's blessing if they continued on the path of, of righteousness that they were in. And so it's like foretelling is part of being a prophet as well as forthtelling, telling what is right and what's going on right now. The purpose of prophecy is always twofold. It's first of all to be an encouragement to those that are following and trusting in God. The fact that, that as, as, as a prophet comes and tells about what God's going to do in the future, that should be an encouragement about the, about the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that He orchestrates and orders the things that, that He brings in and out of our lives. Also, prophecy brings about the message of a warning to unbelievers, warnings to those that, that do not know God, that are not following God, of what's going to happen and what's going to be their end if they don't change their ways. And so, prophecy always serves to give hope to the believers, to give warning to the unbelievers, and to give us an assurance that God has under, that the world and, and the times in which we live are un, under God's sovereign control. So I want to begin this morning by reading the opening verses of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, and then we're going to go back and look at some background about what Paul said in the first letter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, 
whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. It's interesting in this second letter, uh, Paul, as he addresses end times and what God's going to do in the future, it comes from a position of there was confusion about that. And so he's trying to, to set the record straight, to, to give them an accurate picture of what God's plan is for the ages to come. And so to begin with, I want to go back to 1 Thessalonians and look at the first time that Paul addresses the end times. And again, you'll notice the language is very much the same. He's trying to bring some clarity to confusion that they have. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven, and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive are left, and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. People will, uh, are, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So in this opening letter, Paul talks about the coming of Jesus Christ. And the word that you see, the phrase that you see repeated here, and also in the second letter, also throughout the Old and New Testament, is the day of the Lord. And so what I want to do this morning as we begin is put this in context. What does it mean? What does that phrase mean, the day of the Lord? And so I have a timeline up here that I put together. I looked through a lot of timelines this week to try to find one that was exactly what I wanted, and they were all so busy that it was just confusing. And so I decided to make my own. Um, you'll notice that my gift is not artistry. Uh, my gift is this is what it says, and this is what we need to know. So anyway, what you need to know from this chart is that this is a picture of God's redeeming mankind from the fall until the eternal state, the, the new heaven and new earth. This is the process by which God has started in order to bring man from the Garden of Eden in which God and man could walk side by side without sin, without separation, with no breakdown in relationship, to bring man back to the place in which we can enjoy that kind of unfettered relationship with God, with the Holy God once again. And so these are the high points. First, there was the fall, and that opened up man's conscience. We knew all of a sudden what was good and evil. It opened our eyes. We fell in our relationship with God. The next thing on God's timetable was the coming of Noah, the judgment that fell. And, from, and after Noah came back off the ark, it's the period or the stage in which we call human government. There was not a, a, a standard way in which man approached God. Then with the call of Abraham, we begin a new stage, which is called the stage of promise. God drew Abraham, chose him out of the people uh, of uh, Ur of the Chaldeans and said, I'm, I choose you 
to be the father of my chosen people, the nation of Israel. And so from that point on, they began to function under the promise that God was going to make them a great nation. He was going to give them a land. He was going to make the descendants of Abraham more numerous than the sands on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And so for the next stage in, in, in the Bible, we see that they lived under the promise. With the coming of Moses, we see the beginning of a new stage. That's the stage of the law. Remember, when Moses came on the scene, God told Moses that after, when he was in the wilderness, he said, you're going to be back here with my people, and, and indeed that was fulfilled. When they came to the mountain, God gave them the law, and for the next several hundred years, that was the way that they were to approach God. God the law was nothing more than a picture of what God intended to do when Jesus Christ came. The sacrificial system, the shedding of blood, the clean and unclean animals, all the things that they had to live under. God said, for this period of time, this is the way that you need to approach me as the holy God. The next thing on God's timetable was the coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ came, when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, his sacrifice became adequate for all of mankind. No longer did we have to live under the law. No longer do we have to do the, the animal sacrifices because the blood of Jesus Christ was adequate to bring mankind back into a right, into a right relationship with the sovereign, holy God. So the age of grace is where we are right now. We come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ by accepting his sacrifice for us. And we can come, it goes from in the Old Testament in which you, if you didn't approach God correctly, that your life could be snuffed out to where we're told in Hebrews in this age of grace that because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we can come boldly before the throne of God. And so we're in the age of grace. And so what Paul is talking about is this first coming of Jesus Christ. It's what he talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, about the, the gathering together of the saints, the ones who are alive on the earth and the ones that have already died that knew Christ, the gathering up of those believers and rapturing them, taking them out of this world to be with God. This first coming of Jesus Christ begins the period of the tribulation, which scripture refers to as the day of the Lord. When you read through the Old Testament passages and it talks about the day of the Lord and this is going to occur, the day of the Lord, and it gives a description, it's talking about that tribulation period, the day of the Lord. It's the period in which Jesus Christ begins to pour out the wrath of God upon sinful mankind, upon those that have not come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. This first time that Jesus comes back to the earth, this first first the first coming, he will not actually set his feet down upon the earth. Rather, those that know Christ will be gathered together with those that are raised from the dead that knew Christ, and they will meet him in the air. And so we won't actually set his feet down. That will begin, that will usher in the tribulation period, the seven years that spoken of in a lot of detail in the book of Revelation. At the end of that seven-year period, Jesus Christ will come back again, he will vanquish his enemies at the battle of Armageddon, and will begin a thousand-year millennial kingdom in which Jesus sets up his kingdom on this earth. And at the end of that period of time, there will be one more judgment, the great white throne judgment, in which everybody will be judged on whether or not they knew or accepted Christ as their Savior, and after that comes the new heaven and the new earth in which 
the conditions and the way that we relate to a holy God is back to the way it was back in the Garden of Eden. And so this is God's plan and purpose for redeeming mankind. And so as Paul writes this letter to to the Thessalonians, in the first letter he talks about the rapture and the coming of, of Jesus Christ to take his church away. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to focus on this morning, what that looks like. So in those opening verses, Paul says to them, don't become easily unsettled and alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word or by mouth, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. There was confusion in the early church, and whether that confusion came from from someone that was, was trying to promote false doctrine, whether it was a seed that was planted by Satan himself, as, as this church looked out and they saw the wickedness around them and they saw the persecution that was going on around them, they thought, maybe we've missed it. Maybe Christ came and, and took his church away and now we're starting into the tribulation and we've missed it. And so Paul wanted to, to take away the confusion that they had You'll pardon me just a minute. I need to catch back up with my notes. That's why I love technology. It doesn't always do what I think it should do. All right. So Paul says there's two things that have to occur. The reason that the rapture hasn't happened is because there's two precursors, two things that have to occur before the rapture happens. What are those things? Verse 3 tells us what they are. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So the two things that must occur before the rapture, number one is the rebellion. And the word the is very important in that phrase. Because throughout the history since Christ came, even back when when the Israelites were under the law, we saw people, there were people that, that came to God, decided they wanted to follow God, and then when persecution or something arose or they got mad at God, they fell away, and they walked away from their relationship with God. That's been the case all the way through history of mankind. People come and come to God on His terms, and then they fall away. That's not what this is talking about. The word is the rebellion. It's talking about a period of worldwide rebellion, of worldwide apostasy, of people walking away from the church and walking away from God and rejecting the message of Jesus Christ and rejecting the truth. That has to occur before the rapture can occur. The second thing that we see on the timeline that must occur that Paul says is that there has to be the revealing of the Antichrist. The revealing of the Antichrist. That word reveal is, a, is an important word because it tells us the level of, of revelation that will be necessary in, before the rapture occurs. Revealing is not a total disclosure. Revealing is removing the cover to give indication of what is. I, the, the picture that I like to see is, is um, uh, when... When you were growing up and your mom was cooking something in the kitchen and it smelled really good, but the pot was covered and you didn't know what was in there. And so you go over the pot and you'd ask mom and she would lift the lid so you could see what was in there. Didn't know what it tasted like. You knew it was going to be good. It wasn't a full revelation of what that was, but it was a, it was a removing of the cover so you could tell in some regard what that was. And so that's the picture. That's the two things that Paul says. These two things have to occur before the rapture of the church. And so be encouraged. 
The fact that they had not occurred at this time in, in, in the New Testament church meant that the rapture had not occurred, and so he was putting their minds at ease. So the rebellion and the revealing of the Antichrist. And the revealing of the Antichrist. I want to read for you a little bit from Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Uh, that's two chapters in the book of Matthew that deal a lot with this, with this period that's called the day of the Lord. This is what the rebellion looked like, the apostasy looked like. Verses 20, um, 10 through 14 of Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So notice when we talk about the rebellion, it's not talking about a few people walking away. The terms that are used in, in that to describe that are many and most. It's talking about most will walk away, not just a few or isolated few. So that's the two things that must occur before the rapture of the church, the rebellion and revealing of the Antichrist. In verses 6 and 7 of 1 Thessalonians, we're introduced to another element that's important in this, in, in the rapture of the church, and that is what's called the restrainer. Why hasn't this occurred? Why isn't, I mean, there's rebellion. Why hasn't this occurred yet? Why has God allowed His church to remain? Here's what Paul says about that in verses 6 and 7. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. So Paul says there's something that is holding back the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist from coming. And what is that? The pronoun that's used there is he. He is holding him back. All right, what exactly, I'm going to go backwards in my notes a little bit. I'm going to confuse the people running the slides this morning. What does is, what is the, the Antichrist look like, and, and what, is, what is it that this restrainer is holding back? First of all, the description that we see of him, uh, this description in 2 Thessalonians is probably the most succinct description of the Antichrist that we find anywhere in Scripture. Uh, the passages in Revelation refer to him as a beast. As you go back into Daniel, he's referred to as in, in kind of obscure terminology as well. Here, it's talked about, he's talked about the man of lawlessness. And we see in, in, this, in the text that there's five things that this Antichrist will bring to the world, five things that he will do that, that right now he's being restrained from, from, allowing these, from, from God allowing these things to occur. So what will he do? We're told in, in verses 3 through 5 and 8 through 9 of the text, that he will set himself up as a god. He will come into this world and he will promote himself as being a deity. He will be above mankind. He will be greater than the rest of the earth. He, he, he will have an elevated opinion of himself. He will set himself up as a god. The second thing we see from the text is that he will occupy God's temple in Jerusalem. In whatever way is appropriate at that, that stage of time, he will set up his, himself as in, in God's place in the temple in Jerusalem. What that looks like, we don't know because of the, the unrest that's currently in the Middle East as has been there for, for centuries, but he will set himself up in God's temple. He will claim to be God. 
not only will he see himself as a God, but he will claim to be the God, the sovereign God. He will be empowered by Satan himself. Satan will be the one that gives him his power and his authority and his ability to perform these signs and wonders. In Revelation chapter 16, where he's referred to as the beast, it tells us a little bit about the power that he's going to possess. Revelation 13, verses 13 and 14. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the sign it was given, power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them, it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The power that he possesses, not power given him by God, but power given him by Satan himself. And so the restrainer, why has this, we, we see evil in our world, and, and I believe there's, there's underlying evil that we don't even have a comprehension about. Why has this man, this Antichrist, not appeared? Because God has put the restraints on him. The thing that, that I want us to recognize in this passage as we look at, at God's plan for the ages is that there's no part of this that is outside of God's control. When you think of God and his interaction with Satan after he fell, think back to the opening chapters of Job. Remember the conversation that, that God was in heaven and, and Satan came and, and presented himself to God. And they had a conversation. And in that conversation, God was bragging on his servant Job. And Satan said to God, well, it's no wonder that he's faithful to you. You, you give him everything that you want. You blessed him beyond belief. If you take those things away, he'll curse you. And so what did God say to Satan? He said, okay, I grant you permission to test my servant Job, but there are limits on what you can do. And so that tells me that within the context of the hierarchy of the spiritual world, that Satan has authority only within those realms in which God grants that. And that's exactly what we see as we look at this restrainer the restrainer that God has put in place. He's already, the, the evil one is already at work. The wickedness is already here, but he's being restrained until a proper time by God. Notice the terminology in those, in those verses that I read about the restrainer, about the restraint. It's a he pronoun. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. What is the he? Well, we know from Scripture that only God has the power to restrain and control Satan. So the he in this picture has to be part of God or an element of the Trinity. Who is the he that is present in our world today? Who is the he that indwells God's people, that empowers God's people within the church in the world today? That's the Holy Spirit. And so I believe in when you look at the restrainer, the restrainer that is in place to keep evil from, from having full sway until the time that God designs and allows is the Holy Spirit. And so what does it mean when he is taken out of the way and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, has full sway? I believe that that's a picture of the rapture of the church because the Holy Spirit lives and indwells in every single believer. The Holy Spirit is the one that, that 
quickens our hearts and, and helps us or enables us to know that we need to have Jesus as Savior and accept Him into our heart. The Holy Spirit is the one that, that as we minister, as we teach, as we share, He's the one that empowers everything that we do. And we find in this text that, that His presence within the, the church of God in the world today is the one that is the entity that is restraining the power of evil from having full sway, restraining. You know, there's another picture in Scripture of which we see God kind of moving back the restraints, and that's in First um, Romans chapter 1. If you are familiar with that passage, there's a, it's kind of the downward spiral of evil in which when mankind is left to himself and refuses to acknowledge God and refuses to obey God or walk in the truth, there's this downward spiral of depravity that man falls in, into. And three times in that passage in which this downward spiral is being described, the phrase is used, and God gave them over to a depraved mind. And God gave them over to these sensual sexual desires. And, and to me, that's a picture of God removing His restraint, removing the, the, the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. And so the sin that there is, pre is present and prevalent in their lives can have full sway. He removes that. The restraining power of the Holy Spirit will be removed when the church is raptured. I believe that that same passage in Romans gives us a description of what that will look like. Verses 29 and following. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love. No mercy. When God's power and restraint, when the removing of the Holy Spirit, when God takes away that influence in our lives, then the sinful nature that we have and the influence of the evil one in this world has full sway. Do you realize we have no comprehension of what our lives or what any of us are capable of without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit and the saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ? No comprehension of what we might have be or might have been. So the Holy Spirit is the restraining one that holds these things back. The last thing we see is the delusion. What's it going to be like after that restraint is taken away? We see that in verses 9 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth and have delighted in wickedness. After the rapture of the church, think about what the reality will be in this world. The question has been asked by numerous people, is it possible to be saved, to come to faith in Christ after the rapture of the church? Well, think about what this passage tells us and what we've talked about, about the power and the significance of the Holy Spirit in the process of salvation. 
I didn't wake up one morning and decide for myself that I needed to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. That occurred only because the Holy Spirit of God opened my eyes, removed the blinders that, that were in front of my face about my need of Christ and enabled me to see my need of trusting Jesus as my Savior. There was no part of that process that was of my initiative and, uh, and my decision. The whole, every part of that was the empowering and the working of the Holy Spirit. So what's it going to be like in the tribulation? After the rapture of the church, after the removal of the restrainer, after the removal of the Holy Spirit, how are people going to come to know Christ if the Holy Spirit's influence is removed from the world? I'm not saying that's not possible. God alone knows that. But the probability of that will be very, very, very slim. And to make matters worse, we're told in these verses that this delusion will come upon the earth, how Satan works. How does Satan work? He works through lies and deceitfulness. Deceit is not, appear, it, things are not what they appear on the surface. His working and his moving and his having full sway in this world during the tribulation period will be one in which people are caught up in something that is not exactly what they think it is. It's not, it's not going to be portrayed as something horribly evil. My perception is it's going to be something that's portrayed potentially as good, but it really serves the lie. It serves the lie that, that Satan has put out there. It says God sends them a powerful delusion. He removes the restrainer. He removes the influence of the Holy Spirit so that they believe the lie. God allows them to be taken away in the lie. Why? Because they had opportunity to believe the truth and they refused to do so. There's not going to be anybody that doesn't know Christ that enters into the tribulation period or dies without Christ that's going to face judgment that is not being judged because of the fact that they rejected the opportunity to believe the truth. And that's what it tells us in these verses. The removal of the church and the Holy Spirit's influence with the rapture it will be difficult in these times to not be caught up and believe the lie. And so why is this important for us today? Why is it important that we, that we look at this passage and we, we have an awareness of what God is doing and God's timetable for the ages? We live in the age of grace. It's fairly easy for us to, to accept Christ and to walk with Him. In this country, we're predominantly free of persecution other than maybe some ridicule not true in the rest of the world. So what's the next event on the prophetic timeline? It's the rapture of the church. It's the rapture of the church. As you look at what, what God is doing and what God has done through history, the rapture of the church. And so the question becomes, is there anything else that needs to occur? Could Jesus rapture His church today? I believe indeed He could. Today could be the day. Why do I believe that? A wholesale walking away from God on a worldwide scale. Do we see that? Does that description of what we read in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 and following, accurate for what we see going on in the world today? Absolutely. What about the advance of false religions? Do you realize that statistically, if you look at the, at the increase in the advancement of the, of the Muslim faith, that that is transcending 
cultures and nations and people and rapidly becoming one of the most prominent religions on the face of the earth. And that's a false religion. That's a false religion. And so has the rebellion occurred? It could very well be occurring. I'm not willing to to say that. I don't believe that God wants us to be able to know that in definity, but certainly the conditions that we see. And, and I think, you know, that the phrases that it's talked about, about how there's evil occurring and there's evil that's being restrained. I, I think that there are levels of evil in our world that, that we're starting to see some glimpses of, some things that, that, that we didn't think possible but as, as with the media sources and, and everything being seen and heard so quickly by the entire world, I think there's levels of evil and levels of wickedness that are going on that we don't have any comprehension of. And you have to remember that, that we live in middle America. I mean, this is the bastion of, of, of conservativeness and, 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 and truthfulness. And, and so I think if we were to move to the coast in our country or move to other nations around the world, the, the prevalence of evil and wickedness would be more easily seen. What about the Antichrist revealed? Remember what that word re- revealed means. It means uncovered. doesn't mean that he has to assume his power doesn't mean that he has had to um, take his place in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It just means that he has to be revealed in some way. That could be in God's eye nothing more than, than a flash across a media screen, a flash across your phone of a face or an entity revealed. He could very well, very easily be alive in the world today. And so how... As, as I studied these, this passage the last couple of weeks, the thing that just kept going back and forth in my mind, as, as I read and study this passage today, and I look at it the way that I see it compared to the way I looked at it six to eight months ago, it's way different. Because we have just come through a period of time in which things have occurred that we none of us have seen before. Because of the, the prevalence and the significance of media and the internet and the ability for everybody in the world to be caught up in something at the same time, that, that was not a possibility in the Thessalonian church. Because when, if, they, if they were confused that maybe the Lord had already come, the only way that they would have known about that is because of word of mouth. There was no other way of, of communication. But yet, how does the last six to eight months magnify the times that we're in. All of a sudden, we live in a time in which the ability of the whole world to be motivated and influenced is so easily done. Do you realize all of this COVID and all of the effects of that and the ripples throughout nations and society and throughout the world, do you realize that that is an unseen thing? None of us have seen a coronavirus. And so what, what does that mean? It means that we are totally at the mercy of what people tell us. That's a dangerous place to be. And yet, when that unknown is coupled with fear and loss of life and loss of freedoms and what if, then all of a sudden you can motivate an entire world in a direction that you want them to go. So when you look at how these things might occur, the, the lie, the delusion, people being caught up in things that are not what they see, 
I believe the last six to eight months have been a picture. In, in, in some ways, it's kind of like a, a shot over the bow that the world in which we live in is ripe for the coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ in the rapture of his church. Things that we six, eight months ago would never have believed, and yet now we have lived through. Part of this process has been the revealing of underlying layers of evil and wickedness. Conspiracy theories running all over the place, which none of us know to be true, but the prevalence of evil and wickedness in the world we know exists beyond what we're aware of. Voices of anger, voices of hatred, rejection, outright rejection of God and truth. The conditions are ripe. I believe that the rapture of Jesus Christ could come at any moment. That things are in place that they could occur. And so what does that mean? What does that mean? How should we then act? You know, there's numerous parables that Jesus talked about that are pictures of the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And in each of those parables, the message was, are you living your life in a way in which you're prepared for that event to occur? The first thing that we must be, make sure of is that we are right in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Have I accepted Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice for my sin so that I can be in a right relationship with the Holy God and be removed from the condemnation and the wrath of God that is to come? And secondly to that is that relationship with Jesus Christ the foundation and the cornerstone of my existence? When I look at these passages that talk about, about most and many will fall away, to me, the people that fall away are the ones that have made their relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, an add-on. I have all these things in my life that are important, and, and I'm going to add a little religion to that. I'm going to add a little bit of God to that and, and put that in the mix, and that'll make me feel like a better person. What happens when, when our faith is, a, is an add-on and not the cornerstone when persecution and difficulty and hardship comes and delusion occurs from the evil one, we fall away. We've seen images of that throughout this period of time during COVID. When churches couldn't meet and people couldn't get together and, and, and there are those that, that in the absence of church and the absence of gathering together have found out that I really didn't miss not going to church. I really didn't miss that. My life is full. I found other things to spend my time with. They've just kind of quietly walked away from the faith, falling away. Is your faith the cornerstone of your life or just an add-on? And then the reality of this question of salvation during the tribulation. We don't know when the rapture will occur, and so we're told to be ready. Today is the day of salvation. And then the reality of the fact that, that if the rapture of the church occurs and the influence of the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world as we know it, will you even be able to be saved? And I believe if, if you are able to be saved during a tribulation, it'll cost you your life. I believe that, that the images in, in Revelation give, give indication of that. And so Paul's message to the church was that Jesus is coming back. Be ready. Be encouraged. The, the, the fact that, that that timeline exists, do, do you realize that God, from the time that Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, was under no obligation whatsoever 
to put together a plan for our being restored to him and an opportunity to spend an eternity with him in the new heaven and the new earth. God was not obligated to do any of that. He could have allowed this to just take the way of the world and fall under his full wrath and condemnation. And yet, because he's a loving God, he wanted his children to have the opportunity to be made right in his eyes and his fellowship with mankind to be restored. And that's why that whole timeline exists. It's because of his love for us and his care for us. And so the message for us today is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? The rapture could occur today. Are you ready? Will Jesus find you watching and waiting when he comes to rescue his church and remove us from the wrath to come? Is he a cornerstone or is he an add-on? It's a warning to the church. Just as any other prophecy is, is true, it's an encouragement to those that know Christ and it's a warning to those that don't. Forthtelling and foretelling. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word this morning. It causes us to examine our hearts. What if, Father, what if, Father, you came today? Would we be ready? Would those loved ones around me that don't know Christ, will they be ready? Will I be found faithful and watching and waiting when you come? Father, I pray that the, the urgency of the message from your word this morning would just cause us to be about your business, to make sure that you as being the cornerstone of our lives, that, that we're sharing and we're ministering and we're reaching out to those that need to be in a right relationship with you prior to the time that the rapture comes. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we live and walk in obedience and be faithful to the calling that you've given us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we come full circle today. I want to read to you a couple of verses. If you kept going in 2 Thessalonians, where, where Brent taught us today. Verse 15 says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And I'm going to do something today we don't do very often at sunrise. And maybe we should do it more often. I'm going to ask all of the elders, current and present pastors to go to the back. Right now please. And what I'm asking them to do is to be back there so that if God is speaking to you today about a relationship with him, they are back there for you to go and find and talk to about. Because this is, this is the things that we've talked about that, that Brent has taught us today. This is our life. This is why we do what we do so that other people can have that chance for a relationship with God that we have. So as we sing this last song, I'm going to invite you to stand. And if God is leading you to go visit with one of these men, please go on back there and do that. You don't have to stand here and sing. I would much rather you do what you need to do to get right with God today.
this time of desperation when all we know is doubt and fear there is only one foundation we believe we believe Coming back. 